Let's pray together. Loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I received a message from San Francisco recently concerning Dylan Rigg, our former pastoral resident. Apparently someone had asked him what was the most important thing that he learned during his residency here at First Baptist Greenville. And after all of our chats, hours and hours and hours of Jim Dant instructive chats, hours of intentional pastoral instruction from myself and the pastoral care team and the worship team, he mentioned none of our shared wisdom with the person who asked. In fact, I was told he said it was something that he observed here that was the most important thing that he learned. He said, First Baptist doesn't separate itself from the world. And that's good for the world and good for First Baptist. This week's text is much different from last week's text. Two completely different settings where God chooses to do God's work. Last week, those of you who were here, we read the story of Zechariah, the annunciation of John the Baptist's birth. And if you weren't here, I'll remind you, tell you, it happened in the middle of the temple, in the middle of priestly duties, in the middle of the offering of sacrifices, in the middle of the people's prayers, in the middle of the institutional, liturgical life of the people of faith. That's where last stories we story happened. This week it's the story of Mary and the annunciation of Jesus' birth, and the setting couldn't be any different. In this story, we have none of the liturgical setting of the temple, but the annunciation comes in the middle of Galilee, in the middle of Nazareth in Galilee, and what in the world good could ever come out of Nazareth, at probably the community well to a woman who wasn't even married yet. Last week's story happens in the institutional, liturgical life of the faithful. Today's story happens in the world. I told you last week I love the church. One of the reasons I love the church so much is the church gives us the gift of certainty. There's a degree to which the church hands us the gift of certainty. I love that there's certainty in our hymns and in our litanies and our prayers and our sermons and our lessons and all of our rituals and traditions. We all need some sense of certainty, some mooring in our lives. But when it comes to the mystery of God, too much certainty can be a bad thing. Too much certainty can rob God of God's innate mystery. So I was in Sewanee, Georgia, Friday evening. I was at a speaking engagement and a book signing there, and that's when I saw them walk in. Two guys. They both had huge Bibles under their arms, and I knew it was going to be a long night. When the question and answer time came, they both popped their hands up very quickly. I called on one of them, and he said, I want you to know that I'm here to speak the Bible truth to you. So I quickly responded, noting that he wasn't asking a question, but he was about to speak. I said, well, we all interpret the Bible differently, and I respect your interpretation, but I'm actually here tonight to help other people know that there's more than one way to interpret the Scriptures. He immediately said, before I could move on to another question, no, there's only one truth, and you need to hear it. And I thought to myself, here we go. (laughs) 
I said, well, I hear you saying there's only one truth, but you understand there are over 100 English translations of the Bible, and each of them have their bias and their slant. And the Bible's been translated into over 1,500 languages that all have their cultural slant. And there are over 30 denominations in the United States alone with over 200 subdivisions of these denominations. And we all read the Bible and we all love the Bible, but we've come to different places and different beliefs. There's more than one way to read the Bible. Now let's move on. He said, no. All of these people differ because they sin, and the King James Version is the only true version of the Bible. So I shifted into a little more sarcastic mode. <laughs> but I was nice. I said, okay, so let me, let me try to understand you. After 2,000 years of theological struggle, hundreds of scholarly translations hundreds of denominational discussions and divisions. You've shown up at the Sewanee branch of the Gwinnett Public Library with the one correct understanding of the mystery of God. He said, yes, and I want you to hear it and repent. Those were his words. The certainty that the church gives me, it's a gift. But every once in a while, I need a little perplexity. Now that was Friday night. Late Saturday morning, I had a nice run. I decided after my run to go downtown and eat at one of our wonderful restaurants. The place was jammed. They seated me. Because it was so crowded, they ended up seating a couple right beside me, and I mean right beside me. But I was quietly minding my own business, enjoying my grilled salmon sandwich. When the gentleman leans over, I mean leans over and almost puts his shoulder on my shoulder and says, I saw you in the newspaper this week, didn't I? I said, really? I said, I've heard about it, but I haven't seen the article yet. I said, that was from the Abraham build that we did with Habitat for Humanity, right? He said, well, they should call it the Satan build. I thought, here we go. <laughs> this is just not my weekend. God must be testing me. He said, the newspaper said that faith communities working together did this, but the Bible says there's only one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, and Muslims and Jews are not faith communities, they're faithless communities. He went on to explain to me that his church believes the Bible says that you shouldn't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, and since we were working with non-believers, God couldn't have possibly been at that build. And I kind of shrugged my shoulders and quietly ate the last few bites of my salmon sandwich. I think he was absolutely frustrated because he looked over and he said, you're not going to say anything? I said, well, the only thing I know to say is, I guess that's why you belong to your church and why I don't belong to your church. When it comes to the mystery of God, I mean, the mystery of God, too much certainty can be a bad thing. Too much certainty robs God of God's innate mystery. When it, when it comes to God and faith, I need the argumentative voice. I need that doubtful verbiage. I need my God to be bigger than my imagination and bigger than my education and bigger than my indoctrination. I need a little perplexity. And that's what Mary's story gives us. That's what the world gives the church. While the church gives us the gift of certainty, the world gives us the gift 
of perplexity. As we said earlier, Mary's story doesn't happen in church. It doesn't happen in the temple. It happens in the world. And listen to what the Bible says. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by these words. Of course she was perplexed. You are favored? The Lord is with you? Mary, you are favored. The Lord is with you. Of course she was perplexed. She had grown up in a faith context where God didn't favor women and God didn't hang out with women. I mean, I can almost hear Mary saying to herself, I'm favored. God is with me. I can't even go to the temple but a few days every month. And when I go to the temple, there's two walls between me and the altar. I'm closer to the Gentiles at the temple than I am to God. And I'm not allowed to go to any of the prayer circles because only men can attend the prayer circles. I'm favored and the Lord is with me. Yeah, I'm perplexed. This week we began the interview process for our new pastoral resident. Now that Dylan has gone and learned nothing from me the way he was supposed to. And as we interviewed these applicants and listened particularly to our female applicants, it's interesting that of the female applicants, all but one had grown up in churches where women were not affirmed as ministers. They could barely imagine serving as a senior minister. And even when we asked them, what do you want to be when you grow up? What's your goal coming out of seminary? They could hardly say the words, I feel called to be a pastor. It was wonderful to have Mary Carroll sitting with us and speaking to them and say, well, I grew up here, and while First Baptist isn't perfect, I had strong female role models, and I knew what it looked like to be a woman and be in ministry. But some of our candidates, they were, well, perplexed. Zechariah shows God working on the inside in the traditions and the rituals of the temple and the community of faith. But Mary... Mary takes us outside of this liturgical narrative and lifts us out of this four-week, controllable, manageable, calendared Advent. And Mary tells us Advent happens in the world all the time. It's raw and real in the world. It's what Paul spoke of in Romans 8.22 when he said, creation is groaning with the pain of childbirth, waiting on the fruits of the kingdom to come. It's the world in Advent mode that is waiting and groaning. When you read the newspaper and groan, that's Advent. When you watch the television news and groan, that's Advent. When people are marching and picketing for justice, that's Advent. When you are sitting in a counselor's office with tears rolling down your face, wishing things could be different, that's Advent. When you're sitting in an AA meeting and you say the serenity prayer one more time, hoping that's Advent. When the world watches the church and sees how hurtful we can be at times and judging we can be at times and they groan, that's Advent. When Mary bursts into song and says, surely now justice is going to come and the poor are going to be raised up and those who have not are going to have, that's Advent. The world and all of us in it, when we are perplexed and groaning and hoping and waiting and working for something better, 
That's Advent. And that kind of groaning and perplexity is the gift the world gives us. So Dylan, our last pastoral resident, said the most important thing he learned here was not to separate the church from the world. And I get it, because the church gives us the gift of certainty, and the world gives us the gift of perplexity. And we need both. Let's pray together. Holy God, in the miraculous moments of this season, perplex us confound us, astound us, leave us jaw-dropped and eyes wide open at the breadth and the depth and the marvel of your love and grace. Bring us to our naive needs, knowing that we are unconditionally loved by you, and so is everyone else. For you so loved the world, you gave your Son. Put in our hearts and our throats those holy groans of Advent that long for the church and the world to be better. Amen. Our hymn of invitation this morning is numbered 89, What Child Is This? And if you'd like to be a member of a church that loves to think and pray and struggle and be engaged with its world, and the work that God is doing in the world, we would love to have you join us. I'm going to be standing at the front, and you can come forward. I will greet you. You can unite with our church by baptism or simply statement of a prior baptism in your life. Let's stand together, sing hymn number 89, and respond as God's Spirit leads us. <laughs>